butterfly. Aha, just as I suspected. She's nothing but a common mobile vulgaris. Oh, no! A common what? To put it bluntly, a weed. I'm not a weed. Okay, so fair warning, this one did turn into a bit of a rant for me. Rant by my standards. Alice Allen standard rant. Uh, I'm going to put it out anyway. But just so you know, I was in I was in a mood. I'm still kind of in a mood, but slightly better. So I'm going to break in with the voice of slightly more reason at points here. Um, but for now, here is here's Ranty Alice. I want to try to talk about a few different things today. I want to attempt to back up my claim that I made last week about Les Murray's poem an absolutely ordinary rainbow. I said it was a really great example of Australian poetry and maybe one of the best poems that's been written in this country, which is a huge claim that I backed up not at all. Uh, nobody has questioned me on it so far, but I thought I would, I thought I would try to actually yeah, back that up in some small way because that's that's a huge thing to say and I feel uncomfortable about having said it without any supporting evidence. And honestly, having looked at it again in preparation for this, I, I'm not sure that I'm right. So I want to talk about that poem, but I also want to talk about a couple of other things. The subject of that poem is a very public display of emotion. And I want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about the way that emotion is dealt with in public environments, specifically at work. This has been on my mind really since I got back into having an office job a couple of years ago, but particularly lately, particularly lately, it has been... Um, yeah, it's been an interesting time in my workplace. Uh, interesting being a euphemism for stressful and um, upsetting and difficult. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we're in that position where people don't know what's going to happen. The money may or may not be running out. Some people are jumping ship. Others are being left to pick up the pieces. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of overwhelm. And of course, we're going into Christmas and this hits me every year, this sense that like Australians like to tell ourselves that we are relaxed and uh, we, don't, we never work too hard. You know, we're like happy-go-lucky kind of people. But... I see no evidence of that in, in myself and in the people that I have worked with over 20 years of having a job. Maybe that was true in 2005, but at the moment, in 2023, I feel like Australians are as addicted to work and overwork and being online all the time and being constantly available um, as any other group of people in the world. I think we just... We love it. So I'm thinking a lot about that because I think that along with that stress and that structure of 
you will work all the time anywhere, you are never offline, comes this like side helping of corporate wellness speak that is designed to make you feel uh, a little bit guilty if you can't manage that. So uh, I'm going to try to tie those, those things together. Les Murray, public displays of emotion, corporate wellness speak. I'm going to tell you a lot about my job in this episode. And there is a part of me that does feel like I've started recording this a couple of times and felt myself clamming up and getting nervous. And I'm like, why? Why am I nervous? Like, I'm excited to talk about this stuff. I, I'm excited to record this episode. But I think part of it is like, I don't feel like I'm allowed to talk about my job because my real name is attached to the show and my real name is attached to my job. I'm findable. So... Yeah, there's a there's a funny uh, feeling of, you know, not that I am being watched, but that I could be watched and not that I am being reported on, but that I could be reported on. So, yeah, I do. I do feel a little bit like I'm not allowed to say this stuff, but also, of course, I am. Of course, I'm allowed to say it. I think as long as I take the requisite care, I can I can say whatever the hell I want. But it's interesting. It's it's instructive that like I have that that little tinge of fear at my office there is uh, a sign on the door I don't know who put this sign there but it is it (laughs) it makes me um, it irritates me every single time I walk through the door and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one It's a sign with the heading wellness strategies and underneath it there is a diagram in the shape of a rainbow flower and each of the petals on this rainbow flower has a suggestion of something one might do, a wellness strategy, something one might do to to make oneself feel better. There are 16 of these, here are eight. Self-compassion. Be a good friend to yourself. Learning. Learn, grow, and flow. Meaning. See the bigger picture. Rest. Sleep well. Exercise. Move more. Nutrition. Eat clean. Savoring. Enjoy the simple relationships. Care and connection. So, (laughs) a million things about that. Aside from the fact that grammatically it's not parallel, which drives me fucking mental, The fact that so much of that is in the imperative mode, I think kind of tells you everything you need to know about the way that this stuff is talked about out in the world. It's there in the phrase self-care, right? I mean, we know this, like it's your job to look after yourself really. And if you are stressed, I mean, it's, it's the disparity between these suggestions and the real life problems that they are supposedly addressing, right? Like enjoy the simple, eat clean, move more, sleep well. Okay, like these are not, these are not bad suggestions, but they don't seem particularly relevant to a problem like I might not be able to make the mortgage payment. 
they get better as they go around. Here's, here's the rest of the flower. Circumstances. Try to influence these. Letting go. Allow things to pass. Positivity. Glass half full. Goals. Dream, believe, achieve. Nature. Energize with nature. Kindness. Choose kind. Gratitude. Be thankful. And the last one, mindfulness. Be here now. Ramdas is currently spinning in his grave. So what is it about something like that? Because really, it's, it's a colourful printout on an A4 sheet of paper attached to a glass door. Like, why does it seem so insidious to me? Off the top of my head, again, aside from the horrific grammar and structure of the thing, it's the disparity between the suggestions and the problems they are meant to be addressing. It's the way that something like that, that imperative mode, disguised as a collection of helpful suggestions, it's the way that that makes everything also your job. Your job is your job. The problems around having and keeping your job are your job. Getting to and from your job is your job. Dealing with your children around your job is your job. Managing your relationship with your partner and your job is your job. And your relationship with your boss is also your job. And the other thing that is your job is all those things that I just mentioned. Eat clean, sleep well, be kind to yourself, be here now. These are your job. This is turning into a real rant. I'm so fucking angry about this flower. Okay. <laughs> the flower really sucks is the thing. It's, it's terrible. But what does any of this have to do with a poem by Les Murray? Okay, let me, let me see if I can explain my thought process here. I am going to read this poem in parts. I might read the whole thing at the end. I'm not sure. It's pretty long. It might be a bit too long. I don't know. But okay. I think that this poem is useful in thinking about public displays of emotion, but I said it was this amazing example of Australian literature last week, and now that I've looked at it a number of times, I'm like, I think it's probably just fine. I think it's probably just, like, fine to good. Here's the first two stanzas for you. So this is a poem published in 1969 by Les Murray called An Absolutely Ordinary Rainbow. The word goes round Repens. The murmur goes around Lorenzini's. At Tattersall's, men look up from sheets of numbers. The stock exchange scribblers forget the chalk in their hands. And men with bread in their pockets leave the Greek club. There's a fellow crying in Martin Place. They can't stop him. The traffic in George Street is backed up for half a mile and drained of motion. The crowds are edgy with talk, and more crowds come hurrying. Many run in the back streets, which minutes ago were busy main streets, pointing. There's a fellow weeping down there. No one can stop him. For... Overseas listeners, and I guess listeners who aren't familiar with the cafe culture of Sydney in the 1960s, Repens and Lorenzini's are 
two famous cafes of the time. Martin Place is a big public mall in the centre of Sydney. George Street is a, a street near there. I guess what Murray is establishing here is this is right in the middle of everything. It's right in the centre of Sydney, which was probably then, almost certainly was then and still is now, the most populous city in Australia. So this is the centre by population of the country and there's a man standing there and he is crying, he is weeping. I did just want to mention, I looked up Repens and Lorenzini's just to double-check that they are cafes. When you plug them both into Google, this Wikipedia article comes back about this uh, subculture of the time called the Sydney Push, which was apparently like an intellectual kind of scene around Sydney that centred on these cafes and a few other locations, and Murray was apparently peripheral to that scene. Uh, it's a fairly left-wing scene, so I don't imagine that he um, hung around for too long. But, yeah, I I love the idea of a, a, a scene that has a name, like the Sydney Push. What makes the difference so that your, um, your group of friends that hang out in certain places and talk about certain things, when do you get a name? Anyway, so these first two stanzas, it's a lot of scene setting. It's a lot of he's establishing the pace with this... Um, this listing of places and people, collecting people and then pointing at the end of each stanza back to the man who is crying in Martin Place. Nothing can stop him. Maybe one of the things that appeals to me about this poem is it is about inconsolable um, feeling, some kind of huge emotion that cannot be dealt with, it cannot be contained no amount of um, no wellness strategy is going to come in here. No amount of telling this guy to like be compassionate to himself or um, telling him to be here now is going to help. No one can stop him. I mean, the fact that it is a flower as well. That's the other thing. It is so infantilizing. It compounds that feeling of powerlessness because it's like there are these, these actual problems, these problems that are going to affect people's lives to do with money and time and workload and uncertainty. And then the suggestions for how to take care of oneself in a workplace and this could be any workplace, right? Like my workplace is the problems that exist in my workplace exist in every other workplace, every other workplace, almost certainly worse. Like I think I have a pretty good job in a pretty good organization, honestly, but the suggestions that are there to help us deal with that are like piddling, like they're nothing. They're, they're so flimsy as to be unusable, really. And then the other thing on top of all that, which will hopefully bring me to Les Murray's poem, which I want to talk about, is that these are individual actions and they are private actions. They have nothing to do, really, 
except for arguably um, relationships, care and connection. And maybe circumstances try to influence these. Everything else is, is an individual action. Rest, exercise, self-compassion, mindfulness, gratitude. I get the sense anyway when I look at something like that. That it's like, yes, we understand that you are stressed and life is difficult. What we would like you to do is to take those difficult emotions and go over, go somewhere private and deal with them so that you could come back and work. I don't think any of these um, things I'm talking about are like new realizations. I think it's like everybody has already thought this and and written about it in really smart ways. I'm just I'm just unpacking my own feelings around this fucking flower. Fucking flower. Okay, let me do the next couple of stanzas. The man we surround, the man no one approaches, simply weeps and does not cover it. Weeps not like a child, not like the wind, like a man, and does not declaim it, nor beat his breast, nor even sob very loudly. Yet the dignity of his weeping holds us back from his space. The hollow he makes about him in the midday light, in his pentagram of sorrow, and uniforms back in the crowd who tried to seize him stare out at him and feel with amazement their minds longing for tears as children for a rainbow. So it's still, it, it stays in that like listing mode. Um, he's not like a child, not like the wind. Uh, he does not declaim it, nor beat his breast, nor even sob very loudly. That's something I'm paying attention to in this reading is like the way that Murray establishes pace by doing that and uh, builds a scene really slowly and carefully. The uniforms back in the crowd who tried to seize him. So the cops have tried to deal with this, but they too have been overwhelmed with what it is about this man who is weeping, the dignity of his weeping holds us back from his space. But I don't know. I There is something in the line, it, and it is like it's the, it's the middle of the poem, it's the key line in the poem, longing for tears as children for a rainbow. Uh, like it's a bit too sweet for me. It's just a bit too – it's really lovely – and I think the first time you read it, well, the first time I read it anyway, I thought, wow, that's that's nice. That's nicely done. But I've looked at this many, many times now trying to figure out what I think about it. And now when I get to that line, I'm sort of like, do children long for a rainbow? I don't know. Really a rainbow? I mean, yeah, it's probably just my, my cynicism coming in. Maybe Maybe this is beautiful. <laughs> Probably this is very beautiful <laughs> and, and this, is, this is a me problem. Okay, back to the rant. I'm about to get into referencing a podcast that you may or may not know called The Barren Field Experience, which is Justin, Adam and Brian who I've had on the show before. They are complete maniacs. I love them, but as you will hear, it's, it's probably not wise for me to listen to their show and then sit down and record mine because... I end up sounding like this. Something that's helped me clarify my thinking around this or maybe 
radicalize me, make me feel more angry, is uh, I just listened to the latest episode of the Baron Field Experience, which is called On Fascism. And uh, it's about what those guys describe as cultic structures. They're talking about the university or the workplace as a cultic structure. So a structure that has all the same elements of a cult and kind of operates like a cult, even though it would never refer to itself as a cult. I don't know if any structure, any, any group really says we are a cult, but um, yeah, they make a really compelling case for the way that a modern workplace acts quite a lot like a cult. And it sounds like Adam in particular has just been on maybe I'm going to guess like a professional development session, like maybe a day long or a couple days long session that it sounds compulsory. It sounds like one of those things where you have to go and sit in a room and listen to people tell you how to be at work and they're talking about it. And Brian says, it doesn't fucking matter what the content is. It performs the cultic function. So he's sort of saying like, sessions like this they become like their own little mini cults you know these mini cult sessions where you're like everybody has to act a certain way and conform to a certain way of being so it performs the cultic function and then adam says there was a constant attempt to impose that form on every possible experience which is quite weird because it's meant to be about this experience but the experience could never be quote unquote authentic this fucking jargon of authenticity was wrapped around any possible thing that could happen. So really nothing could happen. <laughs> and I know exactly what he's talking about. So I've, I've done like training, quote unquote, like that, where you are ostensibly talking about um, difficult topics like, like how to give feedback to your colleagues when you're not happy with something or how to deal with someone in the workplace who is a bully, for example. Tough stuff to talk about, but the way that these sessions tend to work is like there's somebody standing at the front who's like outside the organization and they stand there and they tell you, yes, 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 okay, so what you've just said there relates to my framing in this way. And then they, they impose all that jargon back onto you and instead of saying, oh, it sounds like you had, you had an argument with your boss or like you guys had a disagreement or something, they'll, they'll frame it as like, yes, well, this is a difficult conversation and this is, this is about conflict management or something like that, you know, like none of the emotions are, it's like, like Adam says, none of the emotions are authentic in any real way. Nothing actually happens. It has the shape of a conversation, it has the flavor of a conversation, but no real meaning is exchanged at any point because that would actually threaten the, the structure of the cult. Anyway, the Baronfield guys do a much better job of explaining all this than me. One of the things I love about that poem is that it, it is talking about people's response to a real emotion and how everybody freaks the fuck out. There are patterns, there are ways of being, there are accepted norms, and then sometimes there are ruptures in that, 
and somebody all of a sudden is crying in Martin Place. Okay, so in the next couple of stanzas, Murray kind of jumps into the future and talks about how this event might look to people from a historical perspective. He starts out, Some will say, in the years to come, a halo or force stood around him. There is no such thing. Some will say they were shocked and would have stopped him, but they will not have been there. The fiercest manhood, the toughest reserve, the slickest wit amongst us trembles with silence and burns with unexpected judgments of peace. Some in the concourse scream who thought themselves happy. Only the smallest children and such as look out of paradise come near him and sit at his feet with dogs and dusty pigeons. I think my favourite part of that that group of lines is some in the concourse scream who thought themselves happy. So this man, this weeping man in Martin Place, has the power to break through the presentable facade that people put up, even to themselves. You know, these people thought themselves happy, but then they're confronted with this display of emotion that seems to have no, no reason, no shape, no rationale. It's just happening and they scream. And that jumping into the future at the start of those lines, some will say in the years to come, a halo were forced around him. Some will say they were shocked and would have stopped him. There he's kind of expressing that that thing that, I don't know, I, I, I feel like I immediately understand the impulse after some event like this has happened to say, to, to try to give it a narrative, to place one's a perfect version of oneself back in the situation and say here's how I would have handled that or this is what that meant I understand it I can make sense of it but he says you know there's no such thing they will not have been there obviously we can't ignore the line running through this poem about masculinity he weeps not like a child not like the wind like a man the fiercest manhood, the toughest reserve, trembles with silence. It, you know, it seems obvious to, to point this out probably, but it means something that Murray's writing about a man crying in Martin Place. I was thinking about when the poem was written, right? Like it was published uh, in 1969. And so I'm guessing that Murray would have written it over some period of time in the late 60s, weeks, months, years, I have no idea. But I was thinking, what would it have meant for a man to cry in public in the late 1960s? This scene that he's describing is maybe not so shocking. When we read that last line of the first stanza, there's a fellow crying in Martin Place, they can't stop him. It maybe doesn't hit us quite so hard because it's 2023. The fact that it's a man crying perhaps doesn't seem so significant to us. The fact that it is a person crying in a public place doesn't seem so significant maybe. But I wonder, I wonder how that landed in 1969. I was trying to think what are things that we just absolutely do not do in public? 
and I couldn't come up with very many. Uh, I live across from a very big park here in Melbourne. I'm very lucky to live here and I get to sit out the front of my house and see people do all kinds of things in the park in public. It's a very public place. I have very definitely seen people cry. I have seen people be mostly naked. I have seen people pretty seriously getting it on, maybe not having actual sex, but something close to that. I've seen people taking drugs, obviously drinking, um, pissing. I've seen people uh, screaming, dancing, sometimes fighting, like not, not very often, thank God, but yeah, sometimes getting a little bit out of hand. Um, yeah, so I couldn't really think of like many things that we don't do publicly anymore and crying, crying in public. I don't know. It's, it's certainly different here in Melbourne than it was in say London or New York. London, Tom and I used to just like keep a running tally of how many people we saw crying in public on any given day. It was a lot. New York's very much the same. I was told um, by people I spoke to there that the fact that I had cried in the subway meant that I was a real New Yorker and not a tourist. When I see people crying in public, I am always, well, but a number of things happen. You know, the first thing is obviously, obviously just like a human response of like, oh my God, are they okay? Like, do I need to intervene? And then, and then the second reaction being probably something along the lines of, oh, I should give them some space. You know, if they seem like they're upset, but probably like safe and okay, then it's like, okay, give them, give them some space, give them some privacy. But the other thing that happens in my head is I try to make a story. I always try to make a narrative about it. I always try to make sense of it. The last people I saw crying in the park, it was a couple um, and she was crying and, and he seemed like he was crying too. And so I had this huge story about like, oh, they must be breaking up. It's so sad. It's terrible, you know, but they seem like they really care about each other and what a shame. But then like half an hour later, I saw them just like walking around the park, seemingly totally fine. And I was like, oh, well that doesn't work. It doesn't fit my story. I thought they were breaking up. What the hell? One of the other really significant things about this poem is that there is no reason for this man to be crying. We never get told the reason. We really have no idea. Let me read the last three stanzas and the final line. Ridiculous, says a man near me, and stops his mouth with his hands as if it uttered vomit. And I see a woman, shining, stretch her hand and shake as she receives the gift of weeping. As many as follow her also receive it, and many weep for sheer acceptance, and more refuse to weep for fear of all acceptance. But the weeping man, like the earth, requires nothing. The man who seeps ignores us, and cries out of his writhen face and ordinary body, not words, but grief, not messages, but sorrow. Hard as the earth, sheer, present as the sea, and when he stops, he simply walks between us, mopping his face with the dignity of one man who has wept and now 
has finished weeping. Evading believers, he hurries off down Pitt Street. Again, I think the more I look at this, the more I realise this poem is all built. It's like a it's like a club hit in a way. It's like it builds and it builds and it builds. It doesn't really it doesn't really have like a chorus. It doesn't really say and therefore or anything like that. It's just it's scene setting and layering and building and listing. And then that final line, which is sitting out on its own at the very end of the poem, is a little P.S. It doesn't build to a big finish. It builds to evading believers. He hurries off down Pitt Street. My memory of this poem is really different to what it actually is. In my mind, Murray compares this man to a bomb, a bomb about to go off. But that's not actually in this poem. The way people act around this weeping man, though, is as if he's dangerous in some way. He unsettles everybody, except for, as Murray says, the smallest children, and such as look out of paradise, which I assume means people who are mad. The smallest children, mad people, dogs and dusty pigeons. They can handle this this weeping man, but everybody else... The rest of civilized society, they, they, can't, they can't handle this emotion and they don't know how to react to it. One of the things that never gets addressed in these day-long sessions where you learn about difficult conversations or how to, how to manage conflict or whatever the hell else is the fact that like at work, people cry. I can't remember the last time I cried at work, but I came pretty close the other day, honestly. I had an interaction with someone who was exceptionally rude to me. And I just, yeah, I, uh, I couldn't, I, in that moment, I just couldn't hack it. And I had to, had to like remove myself from the office and go take a few deep breaths, you know. Um, I have been in, in many meetings at lots of different workplaces where people have cried and what I always find gross and sick making about those instances is that the meeting just goes on. I've never really seen that acknowledged. What I remember seeing and what I feel like tends to happen is people get tense and then the meeting continues with a slightly different tone. You know, maybe there's, there's a bit more carefulness. There's a bit more, maybe even like condescension at times, but it's never a case of, oh my God, like stop everything. Sarah's really upset or John's really upset, you know, like let's pause. I think part of that too is wanting to give the person their privacy and their dignity, not wanting to make a huge deal out of it because nobody wants to cry at work. <laughs> at work, you are a version of yourself that is so far away from that vulnerable state. I hate to use a word like vulnerable because I feel like that's one that, that gets used in 
professional development sessions as like a code word for all kinds of things and it's become so meaning free but but when I say vulnerable I mean like you are open to attack you're at like your weakest and you you don't want to be like that in front of your boss in front of your colleague who you might hate or you might have a crush on you don't want to show that side of yourself at work. So even though the more I've been thinking about this poem over the last week, the the less I can come up with a really watertight case for why it's so amazing and it's a it's a landmark work of Australian poetry, uh, the more I try to go down that path, the more I kind of keep hitting what I feel like are dead ends. And it's like, well, no, it's, I mean, it's it's good, but it doesn't it doesn't feel great. It feels like what it's saying it says in a maybe even like a labored way, I still think it is worth, it's worth a lot of consideration and it's definitely worth hearing all at once. So I will read the whole thing for you now. An Absolutely Ordinary Rainbow by Les Murray. The word goes round Reppens, the murmur goes round Lorenzini's. At Tattersall's, men look up from sheets of numbers. The stock exchange scribblers forget the chalk in their hands, and men with bread in their pockets leave the Greek club. There's a fellow crying in Martin Place. They can't stop him. The traffic in George Street is banked up for half a mile and drained of motion. The crowds are edgy with talk, and more crowds come hurrying. Many run in the back streets, which minutes ago were busy main streets pointing. There's a fellow weeping down there. No one can stop him. The man we surround, the man no one approaches, simply weeps and does not cover it. Weeps not like a child, not like the wind, like a man, and does not declaim it, nor beat his breast, nor even sob very loudly. Yet the dignity of his weeping holds us back from his space. The hollow he makes about him in the midday light, in his pentagram of sorrow. And uniforms back in the crowd who tried to seize him stare out at him and feel with amazement their minds longing for tears as children for a rainbow. Some will say in the years to come, a halo or force stood about him. There is no such thing. Some will say they were shocked and would have stopped him, but they will not have been there. The fiercest manhood, the toughest reserve, the slickest wit amongst us trembles with silence and burns with unexpected judgments of peace. Some in the concourse scream who thought themselves happy. Only the smallest children and such as look out of paradise come near him and sit at his feet with dogs and dusty pigeons. Ridiculous, says a man near me, and stops his mouth with his hands, as if it uttered vomit. And I see a woman, shining, stretch her hand and shake as she receives the gift of weeping. As many as follow her also receive it. And many weep for sheer acceptance and more refuse to weep for fear of all acceptance. But the weeping man like the earth, requires nothing. The man who seeps ignores us and cries out of his writhen face and ordinary body, not words, but grief, not messages, but sorrow. 
hard as the earth, sheer, present as the sea. And when he stops, he simply walks between us, mopping his face with the dignity of one man who has wept and now has finished weeping. Evading believers, he hurries off down Pitt Street. With all the listing, it's tempting to reach for the Whitman-esque descriptor, but then as soon as I say that, I remember, yeah, but Whitman's being biblical. The biblical reading of this poem, though, is one that is beyond me because I have not read the Bible. I wonder if there are listeners out there who have an angle on this where they, they understand it on a deeper level than I do because they have that knowledge feel free to let me know. But yet from where I'm sitting reading this poem, it's it's not so much the God angle that gets me. I think in reality, what Les Murray is doing in this poem is he's talking about Jesus. But that doesn't really interest me. <laughs> that reading doesn't really interest me very much. I don't really have enough uh, religious background um, and biblical knowledge to talk about it from that angle. For me, this is a poem about what people do in the face of strong emotion, particularly sadness. And I think that sadness is, in a lot of contexts, very, very scary to people. And I think it is something that workplaces can't even really admit to. If I were to add to the Baron Fields argument about a workplace as a cultic structure, I would say that that is one of the things that the cult does not admit. Workplace could maybe admit anger, maybe, but I don't know that it can admit sadness unless it is given this frame of a colourful flower, a little self-help diagram of strategies, wellness strategies, things you could do to address your sadness so that it makes it small and manageable and childlike when really it could be it could be huge, it could be all-encompassing. You could be bringing a level of sadness into your workplace that is like near inexpressible, but you're still going to sit there and write emails. I wanted to leave you with uh, some, something like a, a reply to that flower because the flower is killing me. I hate the fucking flower. <laughs> and I, I, if I were to replace the flower with something, if I were to like draw up my own diagram and print out a little A4 thing to put on the door, I would probably have the heading, instead of wellness strategies, I would say like, this might help or it might not. I would list the things that, that sometimes work for me and sometimes don't. Sometimes talking helps. Sometimes being completely alone helps. Sometimes working helps. Sometimes skipping work and going to the movies and drinking wine helps. Sometimes going somewhere that's totally different helps and sometimes staying exactly where I am helps. Sometimes trying to put things into a structure, into a narrative, into a story that makes sense does help and sometimes it doesn't help at all because it doesn't make any sense and there is no reason you know like i say i i don't think i have a hard job and i don't think i work in a bad organization um 
I think I'm actually, I'm onto a pretty good wicket and like I'm pretty lucky. But you know, I had the luxury of like not, not having this kind of a job for so long that I forgot how little of oneself is allowed into a workplace because it's it's just really uncomfortable it's really hard to get work done when like people are having feelings and that makes sense you know I'm not I'm not saying that we should all be sitting around on beanbags like you know passing around a a a conch and like sharing every emotion like we are there to do work for sure the thing is that like we're now in we're now at a point where the work is always with you in a lot of in a lot of circumstances so like there is almost no point at which you are not a worker but again i don't i i don't want this to come off like like a personal complaint because I really don't think that I personally have very much to complain about at all, genuinely. But the Barrenfield guys are totally right. These, these structures are stifling and all-encompassing. Put it this way, the, the structures are not built to make us feel good. The structures are not built to make us healthy. The structures are not built to make us well but they do offer us wellness strategies. You'll be here just across the aisle from me. We'll both take care of this paper for the time being. I don't know what your goals are, but don't overdo it with the perfume. Keep a fifth of something in your desk. Mr. Draper drinks rye. Also, invest in some aspirin, band-aids, and a needle and thread. Rye's Canadian, right? You better find out. Oh, 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 oh,